What's up, you beautiful souls? Welcome to this edition of the Deeper Truth Healing Hour with me, Reverend Elsie. Now, often we're taught, whether it's through direct instruction or the subtle waves of societal blueprints, that success equals finding something that you're really good at and doing it so well that the world recognizes you for it. Then you become rich and famous and ultimately happy, right? Now imagine that you've spent years following this plan and at the height of its accomplishments, it all falls apart. Well, that's what today's guest, Maroon 5 founding member and drummer, Mr. Ryan Dusick, has experienced and his story is truly remarkable. Ryan has written an amazing new book uh, about his life, fame, disappointments, and ultimate healing called Harder to Breathe a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. I'm so grateful that he's here to share his deeper truth with us today. So I want you guys to join me in welcoming Mr. Ryan Dusick to the Deeper Truth Healing Hour. If y'all are ready, we're ready. So let's go. What's up, Ryan? Thank you so much for joining me here on the Deeper Truth Healing Hour and what will ultimately be season five of the Recovery Soul Food Podcast, man. Welcome, 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 welcome. Thank you, Elsie. Great to uh, see you again. And thank you for inviting me on. Absolutely, man. You've written a book that is just so amazing to me as we were talking about before we came on i think the writing is just brilliant the way that it that holds a storyline is just remarkable it takes you through the entire experience and you know whether you're a musician or you've ever had big dreams and you know it it takes you through as if you're you're on this amazing ride so you know bravo for that and and thanks for for coming on and sharing about something that is so absolutely vulnerable. You know, I can't imagine that this has been, a, you know, an easy time for you in any way since, you know, addictions and recovery and depression and anxiety is never easy for anyone. But but you've done a remarkable thing here in in healing in sharing it with with the world on such a grand scale. So I'm really looking forward to hearing you share about, you know, writing this, this book, Harder to Breathe, about your experience. And, you know, like I told you before, I've got like two pages of places in your story that that just I identified with so well, even to smallest details about your father and and just different ways he was so outgoing and you were introverted. I mean, it's 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 really an amazing book. So so just. You start where you want to start, man. Tell us who Ryan is, how Ryan got to be where he was, and how he his he found his deeper truth, discovered his deeper truth. <laughs> well, first off, that's so great. I love how different people relate to different elements of the book. You know, it, it's always so interesting to hear 
you know, everything that's in the book is there for a reason. It's all mm. relevant to my journey and everything that I've gone through and what I've learned. If I put it in there, I put it in there for for good reason. Uh, mm. But you never know what people are going to relate to. You know, what's going to really kind of be the thing that somebody goes, oh, yeah, I really I can see myself in that story. So that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, this book has been, I would say, a labor of love, but it hasn't really felt like labor. It was, <laughs> I've been, I guess I would say more like on a mission with the book. Mm. It's been very purposeful. It's been sort of the culmination of a lot of work that I was doing in my own life, in my own recovery, in my therapy, and then studying psychology. And so, you know, this kind of just put everything together for me. It was the sort of the final stage of a, of a, um, a long journey that I'd been on in my own healing uh, and the first stage of maybe, you know, a new part of my life where I'm doing some interesting new things. So, oh, yeah. I mean, to take you back, you know, who am I? Where, where did I come from? How did this happen? Uh, you know, I was the founding drummer of Maroon 5. And that was like, it almost feels like a whole other lifetime. You know, I started that band when I was 16 uh, with my brothers and, you know, not literal brothers, my, my brothers in, in, in music. Um, in my parents' garage, you know, and over a decade, we went from from the garage to the biggest stages in the world. And it was our dream. It was everything you described in the intro, uh, you know, in terms of just dreaming the biggest dreams you can imagine and, and taking it as far as it, it can go. And it was very fulfilling along the road in terms of the creative process, in terms of the brotherhood and the connection that we felt with each other as human beings and as artists. Uh, and then we sort of reached the mountaintop and all the things that I hadn't really dealt with in my individual self, um, all of physical injuries, as well as, you know, psychological mental health issues that I hadn't even really acknowledged, kind of all came together at that moment of external pressure and coinciding with the internal pressure that I was putting on myself mm -hmm. to lead to this breakdown that was devastating and led to me having to leave the band in 2006, just as we had this massive hit album and, you know, were becoming global stars. Uh, and that sent me into a tailspin. I just really went into a depression. And really what I see now is as uh, a grieving process, losing mm. my identity, losing that career, losing the connection to something that was spiritually really connecting and, and uplifting uh, on a lot of levels. And so I had to really go to some really dark, deep, depths to um to hit a bottom which i did uh you know the way that every alcoholic does at some point sooner or later uh if you go long enough some people are lucky enough to get out before they hit a bottom but you know for me it was uh, it was something i had to go through i i thought i had it under control i thought i was dealing with the anxiety and the depression the best way i knew how coping with the alcohol and whatever else until i didn't have it under control and it became um you know, I was just really kind of broken in a lot of ways, which led to this moment of clarity, which started this new journey in the last six and a half years, um, starting with just getting clean, uh, leading into being a volunteer and being of service, and uh, and then going back to school and, and studying psychology and becoming a mental health professional and writing this book, which is now, like I said, kind of my new mission to tell my story in a way that can be helpful for people. You know, if they can see themselves in my journey, hopefully they can see the, the hope in my recovery um, yeah. and just kind of get out there and do my thing, help, helping people one one person at a time or hopefully, you know, a lot of people at a time. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. You know, I, I think that there's always been this 
deeper mission and and message within and and i think that it'll it'll turn out and it probably already has in in your you know uh, deeper knowing that one thing always leads to another you know maybe becoming this amazing rock star and 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 achieving all of these dreams is what's going to now make this other mission of of helping the world recover um so much more you know passionate so so much bigger because you know our world our society right now i mean on a global scale let's we don't even have to just talk about our country in in general but on a global scale people are hurting and you know i i often believe that you know some of us that have gone through the depths of despair the breakdowns the even addictions we're we're in a blessed position because we are forced to look inwardly, we are forced to go to a place of, of true healing. And, and I believe that the world is in this space where, you know, they, they are longing for this and not sure how to, how to really do this. And I think that with your story and, and who you've been, it shatters a lot of old paradigms that often we look at people that were in your position um, in Maroon 5 and think, you know, who's this guy? What problems does he have? Well, that's a bullshit way to look at things because I can only fathom the pressure that comes with, you know, now creating this, this masterpiece of this band, of this music that the world loves. And, and now you got to follow that up. And I can only imagine, and, and because I've read some of your story, your book, that, you know, there was a connection to, to feeling really good at something, to having that brotherhood, that creativeness. And I think that creativeness is our divine gift um, from, from our creator regardless of what the name of that is it's this divine gift and it often walks along this very thin line of creation and or complete destruction and i think someone who is gifted to be highly creative will always teeter on that line and the gift that you are and what your story is going to now do in this world of necessary healing is you've gotten vulnerable, which is a trend that is catching on somewhat that is necessary to catch on more. And because of the accomplishments that you have accomplished and how you've talked about it, you know, it, it's going to change a lot of paradigms. It's going to open the door for a lot of people. And let's just say a lot of men to be able to be more open to healing a lot of it yeah yeah well thank you for saying that you know if if nothing else what i wanted to achieve with this book was to be as honest and vulnerable as possible uh i figured just in terms of storytelling you know people are going to relate to the story so much more if they feel that you're being genuinely honest and vulnerable in the way that you're expressing what you went through I mean, for me, it was like, why, why bother telling the story if I'm just telling the facts? Mm -hmm. You know, I have to really go back to those places and really talk about what it really felt like to go through it, because that's the only way that somebody's going to really see themselves in my story. So for that, for that reason alone, I think that was my number one goal in writing it. But also, you know, where I'm at in my life now, 
as much as I'm trying to, you know, share the things I've learned, uh, to be a model of what you just described. I think we need role models in terms of male vulnerability, mm. vulnerability in, in general, but certainly with men, um, because historically, you know, we're not comfortable with vulnerability. You know, we're, we're told to tough it out and to be a man. And that can lead to more problems. You know, you can be a strong person and get through some tough stuff just like with a stiff upper lip. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times when you're pushing down those vulnerable feelings and masking them with whatever it may be, anger, aggression, self-anger, uh, you know, there's so many ways in which we cope with those vulnerable feelings that feels more powerful, but we're just avoiding what is what is actually going on underneath the surface. And so, you know, hopefully in providing a model of what it is to be vulnerable, uh, we sort of give people the the permission to feel that themselves and to actually do the work that's required to work through the things that are challenging for us rather than just kind of pushing them aside. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that was reading the the part where you actually, and I thought some of the most honest sharing came in when you were describing that that talk with the band when when the you know the, it was this this moment where the band is saying okay we can't take you with us and and the ways that you vulnerably shared about all the emotions you went through at that time i mean from from the defensiveness to the anger to even almost the the begging to wait a minute let me still be a part of this and to then go back to you know and i couldn't really see that at that time so i just held on to my anger i think it was brilliantly described and in reading the stories, <clears throat> you know, I, you almost see it go back to the initial, the, the, the sports time, that identity of being that sports star. And then all of a sudden that's gone. And it almost, you know, if the body keeps the score, then was the body keeping the score this time in the next you know, pinnacle of success that you had to perform? Did the body keep the score then and start stepping in the way? And, and we don't, as a, as a collective, truly understand how much trauma is stored in the body, how environmental triggers work, and how our mind works in, in a very subconscious way to try to avoid that pain by almost creating that pain. I mean, what would you say to that? for you and, and in general. Wow. You could have written this book. <laughs> you, say, <laughs> you say, you say it so clearly, you know, exactly what it is that I, that I'm, I'm trying to get across, you know, uh, I, and I put that story about me and, and, um, and baseball, you know, my, my first passion, my first love as a kid, yeah. uh, in, in that chapter about my childhood, you know, I put that in there for that reason, because it does parallel what happens later, uh, in my career as a musician. And, you know, I think that our bodies speak to us. They tell mm -hmm. us what's going on with us, right? Yeah. And sometimes we don't listen, right? And the and the body gets louder and louder, and it's telling you you need to slow down, or you know you're terrified. You need to deal with your anxiety. You know, mm. whatever it is that we really need to deal with, our body will speak louder and louder until we get the point. And that happened with me with baseball. I mean, to this day, I don't know, you know, how much of what happened it, it, with with pitching and with drumming was physical and how much of it was psychological. It was a combination of both. But really, you know, baseball was something that I loved so much. And it's the place where I felt powerful. And I felt like I was really in my element and, and, and something I was 
really motivated and passionate about doing, but it became harder and harder as I had some injuries and as I was trying to work through the, the pressure I was putting on myself, the perfectionism that I felt, the, the obsessive compulsiveness that I was, uh, you know, just the ways in which I was straining and putting stress on myself internally started to meet up with external pressures, which was creating a situation where I was breaking down. And my body just started getting out of whack. Like I couldn't, I couldn't throw the ball the way that I used to. And every time I would try to come back from injury, just trying to be tough as the way that my teammates and my coach would tell me, you got to toughen up. I would try to push through it and things would just keep getting worse and worse until it wasn't fun anymore. Until I didn't have that passion anymore. And I just felt like I wanted to walk away from something that used to be my greatest joy. Yeah. And and I did. And thankfully, at that point in my life, I, I found music and music was my new passion. And I just kind of like made a total, you know, right turn into a, to- a whole other world, um, which was what which was incredibly uh, gratifying in that it was this was the, the mid, early to mid 90s when it was the era of grunge rock and a lot of Great very time. sort of. Right. <laughs> But really dark and heavy stuff that really spoke to me, the stuff that I was going through as a teenager and dealing with sort of disillusionment and and feeling um, just wondering who I was and trying to figure out what my identity in the world was. And and so pounding on the drums and and finding that new identity, expressing myself in that way, it felt like freedom and it felt like a new passion. And that's that became my new sort of coping mechanism for the things that I hadn't really dealt with inside. Right. And so you fast forward to the to the years a decade later when I was on the road day day after day, week after week, month after month. And 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 it became too much between those internal issues and now the external pressure again. And the same thing really happened again. I started to break down. My body started telling me you can't do this anymore. You know, you're, you're killing yourself, basically. And I didn't listen, you know, I just like, I got to push through it. There's no, there's no, you know, taking a break here. There's no taking care of yourself. There's, we have a mission to do and we're, we're you know, we got to get out there and, and take over the world with our music. And my body just kept getting louder and louder to the point where it's like, you cannot play the drums anymore. And the body keeps a score. If you, if you aren't listening, it will just keep speaking louder. <laughs> yes, it will. Yes, it will. And it'll take you to, to depths to the point where, you know, a lot of people don't come back. And I think that, you know, part of the beauty of us sitting here and having this conversation and, and you said something when we first started, when we first started this broadcast is that, you know, we go to these bottoms, but the mission I know in my heart and, and I believe it's in your heart as well, is that maybe if we get out in front and start vulnerably sharing about these things on whatever scale it is, that people will realize that you really don't have to take it because the old paradigm of addiction and recovery was you have to get to your rock bottom. Well, I don't necessarily Mm. believe that. So I believe that we can begin to talk about this and healing, you know, because it's all a, it's all a conglomerate, right? Like, you know, when we talk about addiction, you got to talk about mental health because if you don't, you're leaving out the root core of a lot of the issues. And so, you know, when we're talking about all of it, the, the hope that I have for sharing about a lot of my life so openly is that maybe you can see something that 
can keep you from going all the way to that rock bottom because in today's climate you may or may not come back i mean it's 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 kind of you know the 90s were a magical and very dark time and they did that music at that time really gave us this this ability to to hear someone speaking about the darkness that we felt while also in this with very beautiful melodies and and, and things that felt almost divine in creation um I, I was a musician myself and just being able to get lost in in those rhythms in in those you know beats in those lyrics were a, a time that I don't know that necessarily music has spoken to me since. And I don't know if it's just because I remember the, the depth of that time, but you know, I, I see it as, as a beautifully dark time in history. And, you know, one of the things that I hear in reading your book and listening to you speak that resonates so deeply with me is just the word identity and how building these external identities, which is, again, like the opening said, the, you know, what we're taught either through, you know, instruction directly or, or subtle societal that, that you have to build these external identities. And, and I, I've done that so many times. We even build an identity in being an addict. Um, there's all these external identities that keep us, keep getting us further and further away from our true identity, which is the divine expressions of God and creation. You know, that's how I feel about it. But I mean, I've been through them all and being a transgendered human being in the world right now, you know, I even did it then. And I see it happening in our, in our climate, in our society is these external identities are breaking away. And we're trying to hold on to them with with all of our might through political, through financial, through LGBTQ plus communities. We're all building these external identities and there is a healing in just letting go of those and falling into your deeper truth and who you are. And, and I know one thing about your story is that very initial the, the baseball and the sports really brought you and your dad closer, which seemed to be there was kind of a gap there between you and your father. Would you say that possibly that was born in that, that maybe we had now this this bond that that, you know, maybe you didn't feel so much. And, and, and how did did that change or was it ever an issue after the baseball fell apart? Well, I think that a lot of people can relate. A lot of boys can certainly relate to the idea that, you know, growing up, the one thing you have that's a connection with your father is sports. Mm. You know, uh, I think that's probably because there are a lot of men who are fathers who aren't comfortable with their emotions. And the one way that they can connect with their child is to talk about, you know, batting averages and ERAs and <laughs> all that that's stuff. Good. And, and there's a lot of lessons. I mean, I look at baseball as sort of a metaphor for life in a lot of Absolutely. ways. It's a wonderful metaphor, and that's why it's my favorite sport. Um, but, you know, I think that for my dad, my dad is a lovely guy who actually is um, relatively well in touch with his emotions and, and his feminine side um, compared to a lot of men that I know. Um, but for whatever reason, that was our biggest bond, you know, and, and I didn't it didn't happen right away when I was when I was uh, a little kid. 
sports wasn't really yet my thing until I mm-hmm. started to get really good at baseball towards like the end of little league when I was 10 to 12. Um, and during that time, fortunately enough, the Dodge Los Angeles Dodgers, who are my favorite team, I grew up in LA. Uh, it was also a golden era for the Dodgers. I mean, 1988 was the championship year, the Cinderella season. And so we had that moment together, you know, Kirk Gibson hitting this home run and Oral Hershiser, my favorite pitcher, just having the greatest season of all time on the mound. And so that really bonded me and my dad, you know, just watching those moments together. I just remember us, you know, hugging each other and just jumping up and down when the Dodgers won the World Series. And so, you know, more so than anything else that I can imagine, that was that was something that bonded us. I was actually more of kind of a mama's boy up until that point. You know, my mom and I were very close. I was kind of, uh, I was very affectionate with her. She, she put a lot of her energy and love into me. And I was a very shy kid. I was like holding on to her leg all the time. When even when we go into like family events and things and, but baseball was kind of the one place that I emulated my dad more, who was much more of a sort of outgoing, big personality. He seemed very sure of himself in most contexts. And I, I think that I emulated that when I was on the mound in terms of being mm. um, just more confident and, and being at least stepping into an identity, as you put it. You know, that was one of the first identities that I owned in terms of I know who I am when I'm on the mound. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. this I'm this person who has supreme confidence that I can dominate and I can put the ball exactly where I want it and I can strike anyone out. And that identity was really comfortable and powerful for me. And so, of course, it was really painful when that identity started slipping away. And I had to kind of grapple with who am I if I'm not that guy who feels mm. that confidence on the mound and and then entering into this phase of adolescence that's so awkward and and there's no confidence anymore. It's who the heck am I? And And then, and then you know, so in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like when I look back, I've lived like four lifetimes already because there's been like four different yeah. identities. There right. was that childhood baseball identity. And then there was this music guy for a decade that I was the drummer in this band. I was one fourth and then one fifth of this artistic creative entity. And and that was like my, kind of my whole self-definition of who I was. And when that was gone, I didn't know who the hell I was. I mean, I was just... I was an alcoholic, as you said. That was my new identity. It was just, I, I was a guy with a lot of free time. Uh, I felt really bad, you know, complaining about my lot in life because I had been so fortunate in so many ways, which you alluded to earlier. It's like, I, I dealt with that a lot. You know, who the heck am I to to complain, uh, having had the success that I've had and, and getting to do the things that I've gotten to do in my life? Um, I can't call anything that's happened to me trauma because it's all been a blessing. I just wasn't good enough to hack it. I just wasn't mm. good enough to stay there. So I would I would just keep kind of pounding on myself yeah. and beating myself down with that self-loathing rather than admitting I went through something really difficult. It doesn't matter that I had success and then I had all these things. Right. Trauma is relative to the individual. And I had to deal with that loss. I had to deal with how painful that was and the loss of that identity and eventually find a new one and finding a new identity and purpose and something that's fulfilling and that gives me meaning in my life. That has been ultimately the closure uh, and the the element of acceptance that I needed to, to move past that grieving process and find a new chapter in my life, which is like, you know, the fourth life that I've lived yeah. so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it's so, you know, and I think that the, 
the the differentness and the sameness in what you're saying right now because as being in that place of active addiction there is so much self-loathing and regardless of of whether you've stood on stages in front of you know tens of thousands or if you've you know just be if you're just right there with yourself there's so much of that shame and i can imagine that even in that situation that you you that that shame would grow even more because i mean i can only imagine that you would think well well who do i call with this or yeah. or i don't deserve to complain and and again that just isolates which is what the disease of addiction does it, it isolates so you're in your own head which is a dangerous place to be with those same thoughts you know that just loop over and over and over again i often think you know when i listen to meditations on say youtube or something that loop for eight hours i i think about how many years of my life i just spent in a meditative loop of of how terrible i was and and mm. how much all my failure was my fault and and how i should have done this and should have done that and we get in those loops <clears throat> that are relentless that you that you're almost drowning and you have to grab something somewhere to start pulling yourself out and if you don't mind i'd love for you to go into maybe the depths of that addictive and 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 loop looping period and what what was there that started helping you begin to see the light of hope well looking back at that time in my life i really did feel that there was no other human being on this planet that would understand what i had gone through and what i was going through and I, it's not that I didn't think that anyone on the planet had ever experienced anxiety or depression or loss or alcoholism or perfectionism or obsessive compulsiveness or any of the things that I was going through. I just felt that my situation was so terribly unique, you know, terminal uniqueness yeah. <laughs> that that this there was just no way that anyone would ever be able to understand uh, and, and that it was so profound that my life could never be the same again. That essentially the place I, were, I was at when I was trying to move on with my life, rather than trying to find new purpose, was basically I, I have to accept the fact that what happened to me is not going to change and that my life is essentially going to suck from now on. And so I'm just going to find ways to make it as tolerable as I can for whatever remainder of this sort of miserable life that I'm going to be living. And then and then the self-loathing of was was, you know, it was twofold. One, beating myself up for the ways in which I felt like I was a failure, that I couldn't hack it, that I wasn't good enough, that I, there was something defective in me. Uh, and then it was. But here I am in this place of incredible good fortune. I had this hit album i i made a bunch of money I, i'm in a situation where i don't have to go get a day job anytime soon i have free time to do whatever it is that i want to, to pursue anything in my life that i want and i'm miserable and nothing brings me pleasure nothing is enjoyable all the things that used to be passions for me uh are just not enjoyable anymore i used to feel that i had to get a certain amount of alcohol in me even to just listen to music let alone enjoy it or play it or create it 
because it was tied up in my trauma. You know, music yeah. was the thing that brought me so much joy. And now it was a reminder of everything that, that had been so painful and I had lost. And so there was just that double whammy of feeling defective and feeling like I should be able to have pleasure and enjoyment, enjoyment in my life. And I don't. And so I adopted this sort of nihilistic attitude that was that it was very conscious. It was almost like, this is the only way through this is nothing matters at all because the things that mattered to me so much are gone. So why really care about anything? It just, it, it really completely disillusioned me in a way that my teenage years had kind of been an introduction to it. That was the first time in my life that I felt that mm. sort of existential angst yeah. where like, I was like, oh my God, like, what does it all mean? Which we all go through at some point in our life, one way or another, whether it's through a loss or just coming of age or, or realizing that our identity was not what we thought it was. Yeah. But you know, as a, as a teenager, it was a very, I think, common thing that I went through as a, maybe it's a boy thing. Maybe it's a, I don't know if it's gendered or if it's just something we all go through in different ways. But as a teenage boy, I was like that stereotype of a brooding young man who was just kind of like, I don't know, uh, angsty, I guess, for lack of a better term. But that was just an introduction. And then I had this real reason why I felt a real void in my life. And it all came crashing in again. Uh, this this existential void that the only way I knew how to fill it up was just with distraction and escape and avoidance. And and that took the form of this sort of alter ego that I stepped into where nothing matters at all. You know, I, whatever pursuit of, of pleasure that can give me a moment of joy um, yep. <laughs> was was the only thing that was worth doing. And so whether it was getting a certain amount of drinks in me, it was going out with a, a pretty girl and, you know, having a night on the town and not thinking about my my worries, whatever it was that just, you know, got me out of self in that way, out of my head uh, was what I was pursuing. And of course, that just meant everything I wasn't dealing with was just festering more and yep. more. And I would be left yeah. at the end of one of those nights crying and shaking in, in the fetal position, uh, wondering how did I go from laughing and, and partying a, a few hours ago to having a panic attack and, and crying myself to sleep? How did that happen? And so it was just this cycle of, of just having no self-awareness, really, you know, just like thinking, yeah. what, not me being able to make the connection between the ways in which I was trying to cope and how it was actually making things worse and worse day after day. <laughs> Until I did reach this, you know, I'm I'm really fortunate. You know, we talked about the the reaching a bottom earlier, and and I agree with you wholeheartedly that you don't need to reach the kind of bottom that some people reach in order to right. get it. Yeah, and I think that part of the reason why a lot of people do need to reach that bottom to get it is because we have so many mechanisms of denial and yeah. rationalization <laughs> in yeah. our mind. And in our culture too, you know, our oh, yeah. culture gives us reasons to rationalize our drinking and using and ways in which it's, it's actually more normal to be in that pattern than to be somebody in recovery and to have yeah. to say, I'm an addict or I'm somebody who, you know, cannot handle my drink. You know, so for me, I, I see myself as having reached a bottom just in the sense of a spiritual bottom, bottom mm -hmm. feeling broken yeah. and feeling disconnected from life, not feeling any real purpose or connection to something larger than myself, just on a daily basis, being wholly fixated on my own suffering and the, and the ways in which I was trying to cope with it on a minute to minute basis. Mm. And so 
very fortunate that it wasn't the kind of bottom you hear about, you know, sitting in a jail cell, you know, uh, having gotten a bunch of DUIs and, and dealing with, you know, legal repercussions for it or having injured someone or myself or having, yeah. you know, uh, things that are, are irreversible in terms of the damage that this kind of disease can cause. Yep. So I, you know, for not having received, not having reached that kind of bottom, I am eternally grateful. And that was a very motivating factor for me in early recovery was recognizing, oh my goodness, I, this could have been so much worse mm. from where I was at. If I kept going the way I was going, there's so much more damage I could have done to myself and to others. And so, you know, for it to have just been a spiritual bottom, uh, that was all that I needed, though. I mean, I just there was just a, that moment of clarity, which is so odd when you're wasted to have a moment of clarity. Right. But it, it was enough. There was enough that was humbling. There was enough that was painful. There was enough that was just I couldn't ignore anymore that I was doing this to myself at that point. It didn't matter what caused this. It didn't matter how I ended up with this disease. All that mattered was that I was contributing to maintaining it and making it worse at that point. And that I just needed to try to figure out a way to get out of my own way, you know, mm. rather than leaning into the denial and the devastation that I was causing myself, just try to pick my head up, turn around and start walking in the other direction, as terrifying as that was, because I had to be stripped of the, the coping mechanisms that had become so familiar and embrace something that was entirely foreign and new and required change, which is always scary. And, but I found very early on when I started walking in that direction and I started just accepting the help that was being offered to me and, and reaching that place of humility that obviously my way of doing things was not working and I needed to try somebody else's way and just be open to, to that change and growth. Um, that's when things really started to change for me. And it really was a spiritual awakening very early on. Um, and I had to grapple with what spirituality was for me because I wasn't a religious person. I, mm -hmm. I, I'd been raised Jewish, uh, but never very like, you know, we weren't exactly um, uh, religious about it. I mean, we, we went to temple on the holidays and stuff like that, but it wasn't something that was a big part of my life in terms of my definition of spirituality. So that was something I had to grapple with uh, early on, but it became very clear to me what spirituality was once I felt connection in my life. Mm. And it just was you know, going to meetings and being with people that were going through the same thing as me, I realized I was not alone. Everything I felt alone with was that was an illusion and that I was connected to other people in, a, in ways that I had just been blind to because I was it was buried underneath the addiction. And so feeling that connection, that was that was the thing that I, I really uh, I grabbed onto with both hands and realized if this feels this good. If feeling connected in this way feels motivating in this way, then all I have to do is continue to search for that feeling, whatever provides that feeling, and it will lead me in the right direction. And that's all I did. And it was really just one thing after another that took me from that to where I am now. Well, that's that's amazing. And, and again, it to me, it makes you sharing your story at this time, again, even more valuable because we do hear a lot of of the rock bottom stories that end in a lot of irreversible damage you know I, we've and and for those of us that have been to those places of that irreversible damage there were places that you're talking about along the way 
there were places along the journey that we could have, you know, jumped off of the sinking ship, so to speak. And it's only through retrospect, you know, that you look back and go, oh, that might have been a moment. I mean, even when I think about how I even learned about the band Maroon 5 was I had been the longest stretch I had ever done in lockup. Um, some girl came in and were singing these songs and I, she had a great voice and I could hear these songs and these melodies. And I was like, what are you singing? Who are you singing? And that was the way that I discovered this band called Maroon five while I was locked up. It would be a whole nother year before I ever actually heard the, 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 the songs by the band. So all I'd ever heard of this Maroon five was, was through this one person singing. And, you know, Again, it was in that time of that lockup period that, you know, I started having those moments of, of clarity, so to speak, those those sparks of hope that, you know, I got to get out of I got to get off of this train like I, I, I got to figure out something to do. And though it would not be the last time that I ever visited it, I learned a lot in that time. And and what you're talking about in, you know, that 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 spiritual part all it really is 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 connection you know that that spiritual part shows us what we need the most of and that is to be connected to other human beings in a way that is much deeper than we have the same job than we have the same disease it is it is it is a connection of 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 heart to heart and and then from there grows this connection to a passion. One of the things that I all you know would like to ask you is, is what during that time, your your healing time, how did it really start? So we've talked about you started going to meetings. What else were you doing along with that to make this a whole program for you? Well, I actually started out my journey of recovery in rehab. I went out to the uh, Betty Ford Center here in Southern California in the desert. And uh, I needed, you know, to go into a detox. My, my drinking had, had become bad enough that I needed a, a detox. And, and, then, and then I was inpatient, you know, in the, at the center there for a month. Um, and I, I was being weaned off of some of the medication I was on and it was a, that was that first month, you know, of course, was was really challenging, yeah. <laughs> but but it was also, you know, it was it, it's funny how because I remember, of course, being extremely anxious and having to deal with a lot of things all at once and that were terrifying. But also looking back, I, it's like one of the best times of my life in some ways, too. You know, it's like I, I often feel like I wish I could do that again, because how many times in your life do you feel like you're just like waking up to the world? and yeah. finding connections and and finding inspiration it was like you know learning to walk again and, and just having all the world open up to me and all the possibilities that were mm. that were presented and and after i i left the betty ford center i did a couple months i did one inpatient and one um in their sort of graduate program i guess i was like in a sober living house and going to their classes and um they recommended i go to a, an outpatient program back home in la and I did that for a few months and that was just kind of like maintaining the structure and, and continue. It was actually not a 12 step based place. It was a mm. cognitive behavioral therapy mm. based place. So it was a different take on it in terms of the, both the, the sort of neuroscience about it, the brain chemistry of addiction and recovery, but also just these very practical notions of how to deal with triggers and how to deal with 
thoughts of using and cravings and all this stuff. And so that was really helpful. And then I was six months in and leaving that program. And there was this, again, going to be a sort of void because it was like my identity had been, I'm recovery man. And yeah. I'm in, <laughs> in these programs. And now it's like, there's going to be a lot more hours in my week. And how am I going to fill that? And what is that going to look like? What's my new purpose going to be? And I did two things at that point. I started going to a lot more AA meetings and I got a sponsor and I started working the steps again. And the other thing was that I started volunteering at that center that I had been going to uh, as a graduate. I mean, here I was, I don't know, six to nine months sober and I was teaching people about recovery and, you know, <laughs> giving people a, uh, you know, just listening to them, tell their stories, telling them my story and relating the things I'd learned in my short time in recovery. And that, alone was probably the most meaningful experience I had had in a decade because I was being of service to another human being. I felt not only was it, was it wonderful to be giving in that way, but also I was discovering talents that I either didn't know I had or had forgotten that I had because I'd been so, they'd been locked up underneath this addiction and everything I've been struggling with. And, and it was empowering, you know, it was, you talked about pride earlier, um, you know, pride can can be taken two ways. It could be either having an ego that's out of control yeah, and being self-obsessed, right. or it could be taking pride in the things that you do, yeah. that you that you feel a passion for, something that you feel purposeful in doing, and having that confidence again, feeling like I have something to offer, yes. and I'm getting good feedback when I do it. People respond well when I do it. It gave me purpose, and it gave me uh, something to look forward to. And so I just wanted more and more of that. And I volunteered at this, this recovery center for two years and I got enough good feedback that people were saying, like, you should be doing this for a living. You should be, you know, a professional, a mental health professional. And I had never considered that before. But then I was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And given what my, my sort of innate talents are and some of the skills that I learned in this process and from everything that I've gone through, I would have some really unique perspectives to offer my clients. And so it just became a no-brainer at that point. And I was like, the next indicated action for me is to go back to school and get a degree in clinical psychology and become some kind of counselor or therapist. And so I did that. And it, like I said, it was just like one thing after another. It was the next thing that indicated itself to me as this is your path. This is the thing that's fulfilling to you. This is the thing that provides purpose and embraces your talents. And so it was just obvious to me. And in the course of doing that, I rediscovered another you know, passion that I'd had and forgotten about, which was writing. And I was writing a lot of papers in grad school um, and having to do a lot of self-reflection papers. Mm. You know, you have to do self-reflection to become a therapist because if you haven't dealt with your own stuff, how are you going right. to help someone else, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it was, that was like another level of therapy for me to be applying the things that I was learning about psychology to myself and my journey and the therapist I was going to become and then the next thing indicated itself. It's like, well, I have a story to tell. It's unique in some ways, but it's also very relatable in a lot of ways. And and I have this platform and I now I have a new mission. I need to tell my story in book form in a way that people can relate to it just as a story, a character in a story that people can relate to. And if they can relate to it in that way, then they can see, hopefully see, you know, hope in my recovery for themselves. So uh, that became the next thing. Uh, that was my mission and my purpose. And it was just following what I described, just like feeling that connection to something purposeful, feeling that spiritual awakening and just grabbing onto it and following it 
wherever it takes me. Yeah, absolutely. There's something to be said for that, you know, that divine intuition to just keep, you know, asking those questions. And I think that, you know, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy therapy is, was probably the most life-changing for me, having spent 22 years in an active hellish addiction, a, escape, you know, coping through this, this, the only way I knew how with, with so much that in all the times that I had made attempts to, you know, because we think, oh, well, if I take the drugs and alcohol away, my life will just get better. And the beautiful thing about really, and I was learning cognitive behavior therapy on my own, on accident. You know what I mean? I, I was just looking for what we seek, we'll find. And as seekers, you know, what just depends on where you put the seeking. And I knew I was desperate to know that, listen, I either got to die or figure this out like one of the two, but we can't just keep drudging this life on. And it really doesn't matter what the bottom looks like. I think we all get to a place where we're like, uh, -uh something's got to give. And it was learning, starting to learn the processes that are happening neurologically and chemically within the body that almost gave me permission that I wasn't just the total fuck up that, that it wasn't just a, a lack of strength or willpower, or want to, to do this, that there were other things happening as well. And it kind of almost gave me this partnership of like, okay, I'm a mind, I'm a body, and I'm a spirit. So I can't just take all of this on to me and carry the weight myself, you know, and, and, and then, you know, you talk about even going into service and, and 12 step places where you are surrounded by people that are also taking this journey, people that have more, you know, experience than you and people that have less. It's, it's such a great balance. And, you know, I admire that you have taken each one of those steps as they've presented themselves, because what you have really truly done with the book is everything that you set out to do, you know, which is make things in there that are told in such a way that you can find yourself in there. You know, I come from a very traumatic background and yet, you know, in, in some of the first pages of the book, I can see this, this beautiful correlation between your dad and my grandfather and just the ways that, that feeling that embarrassment because of their big personality, because of me being such an introvert, I would shrink down when he talked to everyone in the elevator or make the dad jokes. And, and that was a moment in there where it's like, I could almost feel close to this story. And so, you know, what you've set out to do with this, I really feel like you've accomplished. And, you know, that so many different places. When I talk to people often about, you know, because I, I work with people and families that are going through gender transition, um, recovery, um, and, and families that their children are transitioning. And, and oftentimes we, we talk about, how alike a lot of our journeys are. You know, I, I identified truly with your loss of identity. Um, I, I, I resonated so much with your feeling defective um, in different times in your life, especially in that childhood place where you feel like, oh, something's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? And that, to me, just goes to show that regardless of what this, the details of our stories are, 
we are all truly of one creation, that we are all of one and and that we're we're more alike than we are different. And yet our differences should be honored and 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 really celebrated because that's how we were made. It blows my mind that we can't see that, that there are people on earth that can't see that this is a divine plan. So, you know, I, I really, really look forward to as the book continues to come out and, and, and gain, you know, even more traction and, and continue to reach more people. And as you continue to, to move in service, because what you're doing with us, with, with, with these things that we're doing like right now is being of service, helping that your voice reach different audiences. And, and I admire that. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of people helped. I think we're going to see a lot of people helped through, through all of this. And, and I admire you. You've got a lot of stuff coming up. I, you're going to South by Southwest, which is a really, really big deal. Um, do you look forward or have you already made connections within the music, say acting the, so I guess we can just call it what it is like the, the, the celebrity community that people have had the same experiences as you, or, I mean, have you made many connections there or is that still coming up? I'm starting to, you know, I'm in that moment right now where I'm kind of starting, um, you know, basically three different careers at the same time. Uh, you know, I, I've been, I've been seeing clients as a therapist for two years now, but I'm, I'm really just starting to build my own practice and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Um, so I'm really, really in the early stages still of that career, but I have this book out. So I'm an author and what's coming from it also is these opportunities to speak and yeah. do things like this, but also in person, you know, going and, and, um, and speaking to groups, doing conferences, doing things like this thing is South by Southwest, which is a panel about, uh, mental health in the touring industry. So it's very specific to something I have a lot of experience with. And so, you know, these, these kind of opportunities are wonderful for me, but they're also great opportunities to speak to people that need to hear some of the experience that I, that I've had. Um, and I'm really just kind of exploring where that'll lead me. I, I did think at a certain point when I was, when I did go back to school and I was wondering what kind of a therapist am I going to be exactly? I had thought, you know, I would, um, I would just work at a recovery center. That was my first thought. And then, you know, my sort of horizons were expanded in, in all the study that I did in the different fields and areas that I was, I was studying and exploring, <clears throat> excuse me. And I realized that um, I probably, it would be, um, I would be neglecting an important uh, part of my past and mm -hmm. what I have to offer if I didn't seek out and, and sort of market myself to people that have, that are in the same industries and are having the same uh, experiences anywhere in the spectrum of what I did, whether it be success, failure, uh, just starting out, dealing with, um, you know, the, the pressures, dealing with the anxieties, uh, the perfectionism, the, you know, <laughs> performance anxiety, all the things that go along with whether it be being an actor, as you said, or an artist of some kind, a creator, uh, a performer, a, a musician, an athlete. Uh, so I do think that that there is an avenue there where I'm starting to find uh, maybe there's a path for me, both as a therapist and as a as a speaker. Uh, but you know, again, my my horizons and my options are always expanding, and I'm looking for different ways in which um, I can just be of service and be purposeful in what I'm doing uh, in terms of helping people. Um, you know, humbly speaking, I think that I, I have some things that I've learned and gained in my journey that came from 
the, the struggle uh, that it, it almost feels like it would be a shame to not use that and to uh, not offer that in a, mm -hmm. in a helpful way. And so anyway, any form that that takes, I'm, ha I'm happy to do it. No, yeah, absolutely. I feel the same exact way. It's almost a shame, you know, to to come back from that and not share it because you know there's other people experiencing that. Is there anything, is there any piece of advice or not even piece of advice or something you might share with any young musician, whether they have achieved, you know, already some fame and fortune and feeling the pressure or someone who's just starting out, would there be anything that you could look back on retrospectively and, and share with someone coming up that, that maybe you learned through your journey? I think when I look back at my journey and I look at some of the regrets that I've had, the things that I look and like, Oh, why didn't I get that earlier? Why couldn't I have, um, had that little piece of wisdom that would have helped me so much on my journey. I think it was being a young man and being proud in, in the unflattering ways, you mm -hmm. know, being defensively um, all or nothing in my thinking. I'm either great or I'm not great. You know, I'm either, I'm either there and I'm perfect and, and I should be, you know, admired for everything I'm doing or I'm a failure I'm, and I'm defective. And so it, with that came this defensiveness of, um, not being very teachable, right? Mm -hmm. Not being able to bring in new information or accept any criticism as constructive, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the advice that I would give my younger self and to somebody in that position now is, you know, be teachable, be open to the idea that you don't have all the answers and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not great. Right. It doesn't mean you're right. not absolutely amazing and doing something wonderful. Uh, I used to hate the word potential. <laughs> my my, my mm. parents would say like well you have so much potential at this or that and i would i would get frustrated i would say i don't want to have potential i want to be great already you know yeah and it's like nobody's born great even if you have talent even if you have a lot of things that are going for you you have to foster that talent and you have to be teachable and you have to be willing to work and to grow and i, I wish i had understood that earlier in my life because it would have saved me a lot of pain and it would have led to some of the the ways in which i've i've learned and, and grown uh, much earlier in my life. So yeah, stay, remain teachable. Even, you know, look, the greatest performers in the world, the greatest athletes, the greatest, you know, leaders can still learn new lessons, you know, mm -hmm. and it's the ones who are truly great and have a, a great career in whatever field they're in. The ones that take that mindset that I, I'm, I'm a forever a student, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if I'm an expert for 40 years on something, there's more for me to learn. If you have that mindset, it's a mindset of growth and you're going to move forward into the world in a, in a much more graceful way. That's outstanding, man. I can't think of, you know, like I could, I could probably sit here with you all day and, and pick this entire thing apart, but I think that's so perfect to leave with it. Cause, cause it really doesn't matter who you are, or where you are, or what you're going, whether you're going to play on a stage in front of thousands or, or millions, or if you are, you know, going to, you know, start college tomorrow or whatever you're doing. That's perfect advice for that because, you know, if, if only we can always remain teachable. And I think that's one of the greatest assets of my entire life and my journey at this point is that I feel like I'm always in a position to, to be taught. And I've learned so much a lot, you know, here today from you, I've, I'm still learning from reading your book. I, I learned from, you know, every person that I connect with on a grand scale, just because, 
you know, it's I'm a t I'm a, I'm a student of of humanity, a student of human beings, and and I really appreciate you coming here today for writing this book, sharing your deeper truth, and you know, on a global scale for coming here and sharing it with us. I, I'm just grateful, just super grateful to have made this connection with you. Now let's talk about where people can get in touch with you. Ryan says Instagram is the greatest place to touch base with him now. So that's at Instagram at Ryan underscore Michael underscore Dusick. And from there, they can click on your bio and get the book and everything. Correct. Awesome. Yeah, the book Harder to Breathe is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you buy books. Um, and I have a website as well, uh, ryandusick.com that you can check out. Uh, but Instagram, you know, I put a lot of fun old videos of the band from our formative years and stuff and photos. And, and I, I'll post, you know, whatever I'm working on in terms of uh, appearances and stuff like that. So uh, it's a good catch all as well. Yeah, Perfect. I've absolutely, I've loved, I've loved watching some of those older videos that you put out on Instagram. Those are so neat to just watch. And I think that it goes right along with, with the advice you just gave. I mean, if you go and, and watch those videos on, on Instagram and, and see the band and I, and I have everything to, to believe that even as great as the band is still today, you had a big part in that, you know, like, I don't think they could be this great without having have been all in all of those journeys. Now you're still in contact with those guys. And, and because Adam Levine has written the forward to your book, I mean, it seems like they're very supportive for you and this great new chapter. Does that, how does that make you feel? I mean, to, to have your brothers in your life and have them support you. <clears throat> Yeah, that's great. You know, Adam and I will be brothers for life. You know, we we really we we grew up together. You know, I I was in that band from age sixteen to age twenty eight. He's a couple yeah. of years younger than me, so he was fourteen to twenty six. You know, and and so very formative years. Uh, we really do feel like brothers, and time will pass that we don't see each other or talk. You know, for some time, but then there will be moments when we are just up late at night texting each other and being silly like we're teenagers still so you know having that connection is is lovely and i i'm happy for him and all of his successes and, and that the band you know continues to do wonderful things and i'm proud of them i do feel connected to it in some ways in other ways it feels like you know like i said another lifetime but um but yeah adam wrote the foreword I'm, I'm very grateful for that and they've been <clears throat> all great you know they contributed quotes to the back cover the other guys in the band and um and so it's it's wonderful i i am I'm, I'm happy that they're supportive of me i really appreciate that and i wish them the best that's absolutely amazing well man i wish you the best in every single thing that you do i look forward to this being on the best sellers you know in the category of all categories i look for this to be and i look for you to be everywhere with this and i appreciate your sharing such vulnerability here and writing this book. I look forward to finishing it. Y'all make sure that you go and follow Ryan Dusick on Instagram. Go to ryandusick.com. Everything will be in the description of this video as well. Um, this has been an amazing Deeper Truth Healing Hour, and I'm so grateful for all of you. And thank you for tuning in and helping support me to live my dreams. Now let me help to support you and live your dreams. You are amazing. And remember this, you can, no matter where you are, you can get up from your give up and you can create a life you love. All right, y'all. Until next time, I love you so much. Have an amazing week. This is Reverend LC and I'll see you next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>